If I had my choice, we'd go home. How can you be more full than what we've been given? This is the fourth Sunday of Matthew's taking all of Jesus' famous, marvelous, wonderful, genius sayings and weaving them into what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus is the new Moses. And just like Moses, when he was leading the people out of Egypt into the Promised Land, Jesus climbs up on a mountaintop to lead the people into the new promised land, not just the people of Israel, but all the people. Jesus had seen all the crowds gathered because of his teaching and his healing ministry, and then called his disciples together on top of that mountain and sat down as is the posture of a rabbi and began to teach the disciples while all the other people hovered around listening in. What he wanted to teach them and to us is that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven in Matthew. And this is not primarily a place that we go to to find it as much as it is something that finds a place in us. It is a a place of being. A place that we discover where we are fully alive and fully free and fully complete and whole and that we find the incredible balm in Gilead that makes the wounded whole. It's about being blessed by God, even though we don't realize it, when all of the, all of the circumstances seem to point otherwise. It's a state of grace, forgiveness, peace. It's a nonviolent sense of completeness, of being enough with God and with each other and with ourselves. This is for Jesus his goal in life, is to bring near this kingdom of God for all people, to show us the way. And for us who are Christians and presumably disciples of Christ, it should be our goal too. Now, I know that we all, none of us really all the time, want to be that intentionally discipled, and that most of us want to sort of hedge that issue, and so we sit at the feet of Jesus as a disciple, or we hover around the outside as one of the crowd, in which case we should still hear these words. From the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. You, pointing to us, have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evil doer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. 
For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the poor Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. In a perfect world, the Ukraine government of Yanukovych would have not been corrupt, nor would have been provoked to attack and violate the protesters calling for democracy. And in a perfect world, those protesters would not have provoked, attacked, and violated those who were in power over them. They would have turned the other cheek instead. In a perfect world, the pro-government forces of Syria would lay down their arms and seek peaceful solutions, just as the anti-government forces would do the same all coming together in peaceful conversation that included forgiveness, respect, and reconciliation. There would be no harboring of historical hurts, nor any accounting of injustices. And if one of them tried to force the other into doing something unjust, then the response would be to go the extra mile. In a perfect world, there would be no law called Stand Your Ground, which seems to give to anyone who feels threatened, as subjective as that may be, the right to use arms to defend themselves, even if it results in death. In a perfect world, there would be no arms at all, because no one would resort to armed violence in the first place. Instead, you would love your enemies rather than do violence against them. In a perfect world, you can do all of these things while not giving in to the powers of evil, not giving up on justice, and not sitting passively by as a powerless victim as far as Jesus is concerned. In a perfect world, according to Jesus, his disciples do not use power to resist someone who is trying to do them or us in. Resist means violent resistance, at least not the kind of power that takes force. Instead, we are to turn the other cheek. We do not harbor grudges seeking vengeance and retribution, as in an eye for an eye and a tooth for a truth, the law of the land. If someone forces us to do something, we then freely choose to go the extra mile, just just not doing it because we are forced, or out of guilt, or some obligation, simply out of generosity. In a perfect world, we pray for and love our enemies, and since Jesus' disciples are told to be perfect, just as our Heavenly Father is perfect, what gives? Nobody's perfect. And besides, we don't live in a perfect world. Actually, the word perfect is a bad translation. The Greek means mature, responsible, adult-like, as in 
growing up world, as in a non-reactive, emotionally intelligent world. It means to be grown up, just as God intended for us at creation. Now, I know what you're thinking. I think it too. So much for being perfect. We're only human. And Jesus' head must have been in the clouds. A lot of people say this is the great problem with the Sermon on the Mount. It holds up a vision that is impossible to follow, so idealistic, so unrealistic, it's impossible. Promoting a touchy-feely world where we sit around together and hold hands and sing Kumbaya. There's a way out, of course. Theologically, some people say Jesus never intended these words to be thought of as what we do now on earth, that they are really eschatological sayings, which is to say they're about the last days, the end time, when God finally takes over God's complete chaos, cosmos, and turns it into the kingdom God wants. Then this is what it will look like in the words of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. We will be gathered together, and in the meantime, there will be no more mano and mano survival of the fittest in, the, in this world because we will all be brothers and sisters in one place together. That's what they say. And there's some truth in it, but not total, only partial. It is equally true that Matthew holds up these words of Jesus as God's rule of law for us now. That we, if we consider ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, are called to live by now, no matter how hard or idealistic they sound. There's no other way into the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. And it is that way of Christ Someone in passing recently asked me a provocative question. Which is stronger, instinct or culture? It took me a while to figure out what he was asking. And what he meant, I think, is that we humans are born with an instinct for survival, a creaturely instinct, a bestial instinct for survival of the fittest that I'll get mine and I don't really care whether you get yours, which means that in the end, the golden rule becomes the rule. Those who have the gold make the rules. And this is, of course, evolutional. It, It helps the strong to survive so that the evolution of the species will continue to grow stronger. And I think it's what unchecked capitalism, unchecked by the moral religious presence in our world or a governmental presence, Completely unchecked capitalism points to as well. Our basic instinct is always about our own survival, procreation, getting more stuff, and becoming successful and beating down our competition. If that's the case, then every culture, every tribe, every country, every family, every protozoa must have a rule of law if it is to survive. Otherwise, our instinctual tribalism and individuality will take over, and it will be chaos and anarchy. I know this is a lot to chew on, but hang on there. So culture evolves too. This rule of law grows from it in order to mediate our basic instinct through social, religious, and judicial influence in the hopes that it will support the greater good, justice, and to keep the peace. 
The questions for all of us, every culture, every family, every gathering, is who will make these rules and how will we follow them and what happens if we don't? This is what politics is about. And wherever two or more are gathered, it's political. When Moses climbed the mountaintop, to lead the people of Israel to the promised land. In a fiery negotiation with God, he came back down with ten commandments, the rule of law that guided the people from then on about how we should live together. And, as you can expect, these laws, after being upheld by the scribes and Pharisees and promoted by the priests, anytime you get priests and, and lawyers following the institution and making sure it works, you're always going to end up with more laws than you began with. These Ten Commandments morphed into almost 500 new commandments to help govern our instinct in living with each other. What do you do with the blood of the lamb after it's sacrificed? What do you do when a neighbor steals your sheep? What are we supposed to eat? How are we supposed to eat it? And with whom? If someone harms you, Let's say it ta- he takes your goat, for instance, then by the law of retribution clearly stated in the Torah, we're entitled to steal or take his goat in return. This rule of law for the Jewish people became the whole Torah, and it grew into a judicial system that only those scribes and Pharisees could manage, understand, and monitor, giving them all the elite power to not only administer these laws, but to make them and interpret them. This is what Jesus found when he came to announce to us that the kingdom of heaven was near. It's a conflict of interest. An injustice resulted. Jesus said we need to reform the rule of law into the rule of God. He tells us that we're called to be more righteous even than the scribes and Pharisees, and that he didn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill them completely. And Jesus seems to think that by the power of God and our own willingness, we can live by this rule of God, and that it is not impossible at all. It might help to understand that Jesus is not arguing for complete passivity against these powers of evil. He's not telling battered wives or minorities who have been unjustly uh, bludgeoned uh, to continue in in their being victims. He's not promoting victimhood at all or giving up in the face of injustice and violence. Instead, he's offering us a way to mature and a way to resist in a godly way. I don't know about you, but when faced with threat, I have two choices. I can either run or I can fight. Fight or flee. And if we choose the way of Jesus, however, the way of being mature, we discover that there's a third way from that. It's the way of nonviolent resistance. Walter Wink makes this clear in his book, Confronting the Powers. And he says that to turn the other cheek does not mean to letting someone hit you again. 
In Jesus' day, in Judaism, in the Mideast, the right hand was the hand of power. The left hand was the hand that did all of those things that were impure. And if you wanted to insult someone, you would take the back of your right hand and you would slap them across their right cheek. You wouldn't hit them with your fist because that uh, is, uh, seems to say that there is uh, comparison, that we're on the same level. But slapping them against the cheek is an act of insult. And when Wink says to turn the other cheek, what it's saying is turn that left cheek to them so that the only way they can then hit you is with their fist, which again would say that you were on the same level as they are, which they don't want to do, or they would have to hit you with their left hand then, which would then degrade them with using their impure hand. It's the right hand that we reach out to as a handshake to show that we're not holding violence in it. To turn the other cheek, apparently, is to expose the other person for this unjust act of humiliation. If someone asks for your coat, Jesus says, give them your cloak too. And it might sound like excessive generosity until you learn that Jesus understood that many people, because of the Roman indebtedure, were completely broke and bankrupt, and they had to lend their garments, their cloak, their coat over in the daytime to pick up at night so that they could survive, which left them, left them basically destitute. And the only thing they had left was their cloak, which was their undergarments. And Jesus says, give them your cloak too, which means that they would be left completely naked and vulnerable, standing before the one who has just shamed them, leaving that one in even greater shame within the community. During the apartheid of South Africa, there was a village of Afrikaners who wanted to demolish a native village when the white police arrived with their caterpillars to root out those natives. The women met them at the front of the village and took off all their clothes and stood there, and the police, knowing not what to do, turned around and fled back to the police station, apparently leaving the village intact. Giving up your cloak exposes the injustice and reveals the powers for what they are. And to go the second mile was based on the practice of Roman soldiers who would grab anyone at arm's length to help them carry their stuff. The officers had plenty of people to do it, donkeys and slaves, but the normal Roman soldier didn't. So he would grab anyone in the city to help carry his armor and his backpack. And the law said that you could use them for one mile. But if you chose to go an extra mile with them, then that soldier would be severely disciplined by their authorities. All three instances, Jesus' rule of God calls us to stand up against the powers of evil, but never in a way that uses those same powers which makes us just like they are. Violence always escalates. When power is used to stop power, only the strong survive, and we have digressed to our basic instinct. Any marital or relational fight 
proves it. But there is a third way, and it is the way of love. It, in fact, might lead to an apology where you were guilty, not in order just to avoid the fight, or a nonviolent response of maturity and emotional intelligence which will bring this flight, fight to a close. And it does almost every single time, like changing the tone of your voice does it, like stop saying you, 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 and start saying me, I, me, I does it. For Jesus, this is the only way we will learn to live together, and at least for his disciples, it is the way we're called to follow. Once in Atlanta, when I was building a storage shed in the back of our yard, I went to Home Depot in our little Nissan Stanza sort of wagon-esque thing. It was ugly as sin, and it had about 15 horsepowers, and I loaded it, uh, horsepower, and I loaded it up with, with about 100,000 pounds of 12-foot board lumber sticking out the back. I knew I could make it just a mile and a half back home without too much trouble. And I was uh, making my way down West Wesley, going about 15 miles an hour, and starting to approach the hill going up. I noticed this big, black, strong Chevy Camaro roaring up behind me, slamming on its brakes so as not to run into me. It began flashing his lights. Then he blew his horn apparently wanting me to pull over, which I couldn't do. All the lumber would have fallen out. And so I, I raised my hands like this in the, in the rearview mirror, like, what am I supposed to do? I was completely frustrated. And as I got to the top of the hill, the light changed to red, and I had to stop. And as I did, I noticed in the rearview mirror that his door flew open, and he flew out of the car, and this big guy stood at my window, banging on my window, shouting for me to get out of the car. I want to whip your fanny, in other words. <laughs> and I had a moment, a fantasy. If I only packed, if I had a nice little iron Smith and Wesson 38 in the seat. I could have just picked it up and pointed it at the window and said, okay, what are you going to do about it now, big boy? Which is why I'm glad I don't own a gun. Because I might have used it. Instead, what I did was apologize. I'm sorry, I said. Forgive me, I said. I'm really frustrated. I knew you were in a hurry. I'm so frustrated. He's up there trying to break through the window. He's, he's screaming at me. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And, and, and he calmed down. Not before he did something with his finger, but he calmed down. And he turned back around and got in his car, and then we drove off. The fight was avoided. In a perfect world, these things don't happen. In this world, however, tragically, they too often do. All the time. What Jesus wants us to know is if we cannot change the world around us to make it perfect, 
then we can at least begin to change ourselves within us so that we can grow up and mature and become more perfect in our hearts. This, he says, is the law of God. There is a bomb in Gilead. 